Welcome back to The Reeducation. This episode is part two of my deep dive into Bobby Kennedy and his enemies. And we meet some new rivals like Frank Sinatra and Jake or Hoover in this episode, and we catch up with some old ones like Jimmy Hoffa. My guest is the brilliant Jack Goldsmith, a Harvard Law School professor and the author of In Jimmy Hoffa's Shadow. Keep it locked. This one is a keeper. I know we're all indebted to a great friend, Frank Sinatra. Long before he could sing, he used to poll a Democratic precinct back in New Jersey. That precinct has grown to cover a country. But long after he has ceased to sing, he's going to be standing up and speaking for the Democratic Party, and I thank him on behalf of all of you tonight. So that was John F. Kennedy at one of his presidential inaugural galas in 1961, and he was thanking a man who helped to make it all possible, Frank Sinatra. So the irony is that by the end of the decade, Old Blue Eyes would be a Republican. And this is mainly the fault of Bobby Kennedy. But before we get into that, we need to explain that in 1961, at the dawn of what many scribes would be calling Camelot, Frank Sinatra and his Rat Pack epitomized American hipness. This was before the Beatles, and while Elvis was still the idol of the teenage set, Frank Sinatra was the man that their fathers wanted to be and their mothers still wanted to sleep with. It goes without saying that the Rat Pack has not aged well. Today, it's hard to watch it without cringing. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to try to you sing a medley of race riots. That's right. <laughs> you ain't you see colored Jewish yeah. pickets, I'll tell you that. But at the time, the racist stage banter was accepted because the obscenely talented Sammy Davis Jr., who was both black and Jewish, was part of the group, and he went along with it. But it was also because Frank Sinatra was an anti-racist. Way back in the 1940s, when there were no anti-racists, he used his power and celebrity to integrate Las Vegas when black entertainers were not allowed to stay in the lavish resorts where they performed. And when some of the hotels pushed back... I began to make noise about it. A few threats like, uh, I'll walk, I'll go back to L.A. and uh, get yourself a new boy. So Frank was down with the movement. And this is one of the reasons why the glamorous Jack Kennedy, who campaigned on civil rights as well, was drawn to the glamour of Sinatra and his crew in the late 1950s. It was a mutual admiration society. Jack and Frank got close. By 1960, Sinatra was not just a friend of Senator Kennedy. He was not just a celebrity endorser of the Kennedy ticket. He was not just the guy who re-recorded his hit High Hopes as a campaign song that we played in part one. He was not just the tireless campaigner who got his celebrity friends to lend their star power to the cause. He was also a liaison between the Kennedys and the underworld. Now, I think as I said in part one, it's not quite right to say the mafia fixed the 1960 election. As been implied in many films and other books, you know, it's not true. But at the same time, there's ample reason to conclude that at least Sam Giancana and probably many others, and Sam Giancana, I should say, is the boss at the time of Chicago, thought that they had a deal with the Kennedys. 
So FBI surreptitious recordings have revealed that Sam Giancana and his cronies felt double-crossed when Bobby Kennedy, the anti-mob crusader, began his crackdown on the mafia when he was attorney general. Some of these recordings show Giancana and his cronies, like, openly fantasizing about killing Sinatra or Sammy Davis Jr. and even RFK himself. Okay, second, Tina Sinatra, a few years after her father died in 1998, wrote a memoir that said that Joe Kennedy asked Frank to become a, a go-between to Giancana in 1960 during the election. All right, so there's a popular perception that the Kennedys double-crossed the mob, effectively promising to go easy on the racketeers in exchange for their support in the 1960 election, only to put Bobby in charge of the Justice Department after winning the election. Now, I doubt that Joe Kennedy would have explicitly ever authorized such a deal. He was way too careful a man for that. But I think it's plausible and likely that Joe Kennedy led Frank Sinatra to believe that a President Kennedy administration would go easier on the syndicates without making any of these promises explicit or offering any kind of guarantee. So this is how the 1992 miniseries Sinatra portrayed the meeting. Frank, we're cut from the same cloth, came from the same world, worked our way up. We know the same people. I know you know the people I mean. Sure, I know. We need a boost from our friends in Chicago who control the unions. They could win this race for us. But you understand, Frank, I can't go to those people. I might come back to Jack. White House can't owe them any favors. The best thing you can do for Jack is to ask for the help as a personal favor to you. I understand. Okay, an important bit of context is that after Jack wins in 1960, it's Joe Kennedy that presses his reluctant son to make Bobby the attorney general, which guaranteed that there would be an anti-mob crusade. So, I mean, listen, it's, it's probably unknowable. Was Joe deceiving Sinatra during the campaign? Or was this just, you know, mafia propaganda against the Kennedys? I guess we'll never know for sure. My hunch, though, is that Joe Kennedy made some representations to Sinatra. And Sinatra, who was very savvy when it came to the entertainment world, obviously a great artist, but he was politically a neophyte, and I think he was played. That's my interpretation. Again, I don't think we'll ever know for sure. So what we do know is that Frank's relationship with Jack Kennedy posed a sensitive dilemma for Bobby that pitted his loyalty as a brother against his duties as attorney general. Okay, some background now is in order. Frank Sinatra and Jack Kennedy were notorious hounds. And when they partied together, they liked to chase skirts. The sex was extramarital. Now, what's worse is that Sinatra also had many friends in La Cosa Nostra. So this is the context when Sinatra introduces Jack to the beautiful Judith Campbell, who became one of the president's many paramours. Campbell was also, at the same time, seeing Giancana and another gangster, Johnny Roselli. So if you can imagine, you've got, like, not just a love triangle, it's a love square. Judith Campbell's with Roselli, Giancana, and the President of the United States. It's crazy. This affair with Campbell was serious enough that it got the attention of J. Edgar Hoover, 
and the FBI. The Bureau also had recordings of Campbell calling Roselli and Giancana. So when Campbell called the direct line for Jack Kennedy's secretary at the White House, a woman named Evelyn Lincoln, Hoover felt he had to confront the president. All right, now I'm going to be relying here on Beverly Gage's great biography of J. Edgar Hoover. We did that show, OG Man, so go back and listen to that one, where I interviewed her and we, we got into Hoover. But JFK basically broke off the affair, according to Gage, after this face-to-face meeting with Hoover at the White House on March 22, 1962. She writes that Kennedy bristled after the meeting, telling one aide to get rid of that bastard, referring, of course, to Hoover there, as Hoover was leaving. Now, Bobby, at this point, had to have a heart-to-heart with his brother about Sinatra. Jack was scheduled to depart to Palm Springs and stay with Frank for a little R&R in a few days at this point. And Frank, who just loved JFK, I really have to stress that, you know, when, when JFK was, was murdered in 1963, Frank, like, went into this depression. Frank just adored his friend Jack Kennedy. And he was so excited about this trip to Palm Springs that he built what he called a little White House on his luxurious compound. He had a special helicopter landing area built. He had these secure phone lines. He just pulled out all the stops for his friend, the president. So I want to play now a dramatic depiction of Bobby's difficult conversation with Jack at the White House mess. This is another miniseries from the 1998 HBO movie called Rat Pack. And here is Jack and Bobby at the White House mess after hours eating ice cream. You can't stay at Sinatra's house in Palm Springs. Be pen pals, talk on the phone. But the President of the United States can't sleep in the same bed that Sam Giancana slept in. Not while I'm Attorney General. Well, anyway, this was a crushing blow for Frank Sinatra. According to Peter Lawford, who was married into the Kennedys and was also an original member of the Rat Pack, Sinatra immediately knew it was Bobby who was responsible for Jack canceling the visit. Lawford would say he called Bobby every name in the book and adding insult to injury. Jack Kennedy still went to Palm Springs, but instead of staying with Frank Sinatra as it was supposed to be, he stayed at the estate of Bing Crosby, Sinatra's great rival from the 1940s and also an inferior singer in my view who also happened to be a Republican. Of all things, he stays with the Republican Bing Crosby, and it's all Bobby Kennedy's fault. Anyway, Sinatra was furious, but again, he never blamed Jack, and he always blamed Bobby. By the way, as an aside, after this whole Palm Springs debacle, Peter Lawford, out of the Rat Pack. Sorry, Peter Lawford, that's just how it goes. So what Frank didn't know was that Bobby Kennedy was also looking out for him. In 1963, Bobby wanted to know the full story on Sinatra's ties to the mafia, which were fairly extensive. So he asked the Justice Department's organized crime section to prepare a memo that detailed those ties, according to Larry Ty's biography. All right. Now, this was a preliminary investigation. That meant that FBI agents were allowed to talk to associates of Sinatra, but were not allowed to approach Sinatra directly. The result, though, was not pretty. The head of the organized crime section, as well as Bobby's deputy and future Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach, thought there was enough smoke to move forward with a full investigation of Frank. But Bobby killed it. Here I want to quote from Ty's biography, which includes an interview with Dougold McMillan. That's a Justice Department lawyer who wrote the reports on Sinatra that RFK requested. So here's Larry Ty. Quote, McMillan says the Attorney General had a mantra when it came to bringing down the mob. Peel the banana. Meaning, go to the guys on the periphery and turn them as witnesses against those in the center. I thought Sinatra was an ideal candidate for that. 
end quote there. But Macmillan never got the permission he sought or even a clear answer. Quote, no one said no, but no one said yes. Looking back, Macmillan gives Bobby the benefit of the doubt while acknowledging the tangled family web that made the attorney general's task so impossible. Quote, I believe that if it had been left to Bobby, he would have opened an investigation on Sinatra, but it appears obvious that the Kennedy election campaign was deeply indebted to Sinatra and perhaps to Giancana. That's my explanation for Bobby's failure to give me the go-ahead to open an investigation on Sinatra, because I never, not one time, heard of him killing any other investigation. He was always gung-ho to go after the mob, end quote. Hmm, oh, that's weird. I thought Bobby was the goody-goody. I thought Bobby Kennedy was the encourager of snitches and vanquisher of corruption. But all of this sounds pretty corrupt to me. Sinatra helps Kennedy win the election, and then he gets a pass that no other guy in that situation would have gotten. Now, I'm not saying this because I think the Justice Department should have investigated Frank Sinatra. That is not what I am saying at all. I am just trying to point out here that Bobby Kennedy was willing to bend to political, and in this case, fraternal pressure, depending on the situation. And I have to say this was not an isolated incident when it came to Bobby and his brother. Another JFK side piece was the East German-born Ellen Romesh. She was married to a West German Air Force sergeant stationed at that embassy in Washington. The FBI was convinced that Ramesh was not only a call girl, but probably an East German spy. It's actually unclear. So I think there's some analysis that says she was and some that says maybe, maybe not. I should say that Bobby has denied that his brother ever slept with Ellen Ramesh, but he certainly acted as if he did. Because in the summer of 1963... Bobby had her deported back to Germany. Larry Ty quotes longtime Lyndon Johnson aide Bobby Baker in his biography, saying that what Bobby did was the equivalent of kidnapping. Quote, had she been called before the Senate Investigating Committee, her testimony would have wrecked President Kennedy, end quote. Hmm. It wasn't just bimbo eruptions. During the 1960 primary campaign, Bobby proved again that family came first when he forcefully denied reports from Lyndon Johnson camp that Jack had Addison's disease, a condition that required cortisone shots and often left him fatigued. By the way, Jack did have Addison's disease. Bobby, however, flatly denied it to the press. Okay, so there's an element that is admirable about Bobby's loyalty here, and it comes from a very real love for his family. For example, Bobby took time out of his very busy schedule as attorney general and later when he was senator to spend time with his father, Joe, after Joe suffered a debilitating stroke in 1961 that left the right side of his body paralyzed and made it almost impossible for him to communicate. He was able to talk, but you know, very, very strained, only in like one syllable at a time. Bobby would, you know, meet with his father, he'd read him the newspaper, he would give him updates and tend to him despite his very, very busy schedule. Sometimes he would even fly down to Florida just to visit with Joe for an hour and then come right back up to the Justice Department. On the other hand, when Bobby is like doing all these things for Jack, he was working for us, we the people, the Republic, deporting his brother's mistress, killing a Sinatra investigation. Well, it undermined his duties as attorney general. Today, this is just the sort of scandal that would lead to an impeachment hearing. And the corners that Bobby cut to protect his brother really stick out in light of how Bobby used his power at the Justice Department to pursue his white whale, Jimmy Hoffa, which we discussed a lot in episode one. So under Bobby Kennedy, there were like two tiers of justice for friends and family. There was lenient mercy for Bobby's enemies. There was unrelenting scrutiny. The Justice Department has plenty on you, Mr. Hoffa. You don't impress me, and your office don't impress me, and your family don't impress me. Bunch of rum runners. And I don't need $300 million, and my brother elected president to whop your fucking ass, you slimy little prick. I beat your ass, that trumped-up charge down south. I'm gonna beat you again. 
There is no organized crime. The team's there's nothing to tell you see you in jail, Mr. Hoffa. For what? Jail, I fucking do. Okay, so we just heard a clip from the really underrated 1992 movie Hoffa with Jack Nicholson and Danny DeVito. I should say that this scene is fiction, never happened, but the dialogue from David Mamet, America's patron saint of profanity, well, it's just delicious. So while Hoffa never actually barged into Bobby Kennedy's office and called his father a rum runner, Mamet's dialogue, it nonetheless captures the perils of an attorney general blinded by vendetta. And it begs the question, so did the Justice Department have plenty on Jimmy Hoffa, as Bobby is saying in that scene? No, no, no. The Justice Department actually had nothing, really, on Jimmy Hoffa, and it was not for lack of trying. Among the first things Bobby Kennedy did when he was confirmed as his brother's attorney general in 1961 was to form what was known as the Get Hoffa Squad. This wasn't just a team of attorneys dedicated to finding something, anything, on the Teamster president. Part of this detail included a group of special investigators that were deputized later as U.S. Marshals. Bobby brought in his UVA law school professor who taught about the tax code and made him the IRS commissioner with the explicit understanding that in that post he would conduct saturation audits of Hoffa and his Teamster allies. The Get Hoffa squad also made an end run around the FBI. The leader of the squad, Walter Sheridan, who himself was a seasoned G-man, well, he did not report to J. Edgar Hoover or the FBI. He reported directly to Bobby Kennedy. All right, so off the bat, this is highly irregular. Bobby Kennedy clearly had a conflict of interest just based on the bruising battles he had with Hoffa as chief counsel on the McClellan Committee. Jeff Sessions was forced to recuse himself, by the way, from the FBI's investigation into Trump and Russia in 2017 just because he was a surrogate on the Trump campaign. Nothing like what Bobby had with this Hoffa stuff. But Bobby did not recuse himself in this case. And he was so obsessed with his nemesis, Jimmy Hoffa, that one of his attorneys, Nat Lewin, would brief the attorney general on updates on the Hoffa prosecution during the 13-day Cuba Missile Crisis, when Bobby was probably the most important guy in the world. He was the president's back channel to the Soviets. Second, Bobby, in his first book, The Evil Within, it was about his time on the McClellan Committee. He accuses Hoffa of putting his union in hock to the mafia. He accuses him of sanctioning murder against his foes. But when it came down to actually prosecuting Jimmy Hoffa, the case was paper thin. It involved a truck leasing business known as Test Fleet that Hoffa helped establish in 1949. The Justice Department claimed that the arrangement had violated something known as the Taft-Hartley Act because the company had a conflict of interest by leasing vehicles to businesses that employed members of the Teamsters Union. All of this was really debatable, and even one of Bobby's attorneys, fairly high up, Ramsey Clark, someone who would go on to become attorney general under Lyndon Johnson, and also, as we talked about in an earlier episode, represent Saddam Hussein during his trial in 2005. Anyway, Ramsey Clark thought the case was so weak that he actually recommended to Bobby that you shouldn't bring this. Well, Bobby did not listen to Ramsey Clark. He put his top attorneys, Walter Sheraton's team of the Get Hoffa squad, not to mention all the IRS agents, on the case. He arranged for the trial to be held in Nashville, even though the actual company was based in Detroit. But Nashville, it was important because his longtime ally and former aide, John Siegenthaler, had just been made the editor-in-chief of the Tennessean, the newspaper there. So he had a chance to influence a potential jury pool. Victor Navasky, former editor and publisher of The Nation magazine, whose 1971 book, I have to say, on RFK's Justice Department, really holds up more than 50 years later. He writes... Never in history had the government devoted so much money, manpower, 
and top-level brain power to a misdemeanor case, end of quote. That's right. The big case that Bobby is bringing against Jimmy Hoffa, it wasn't even a felony. Anyway, Bobby had one more weapon, a snitch named Edward Grady Parton. He was a teamster who had a very long rap sheet, and Bobby's guys met up with him. He was in a Louisiana jail facing charges of kidnapping, rape, and manslaughter, all of which were far more serious than the misdemeanor BS that Bobby was bringing against Hoffa. Indeed, the FBI took one look at Parton and determined his word was worthless. This was someone willing to say anything just to get out from under what would likely be jail for the rest of his life. So Parton agrees to be a mole for RFK inside the Hoffa camp. Specifically, he's a mole for Walter Sheridan, who was his handler. And he's this mole while Hoffa is, you know, defending himself in the trial in Nashville. Now, the first reports back from Parton are, like, eye-popping. He says that, in private, Jimmy Hoffa muses about different ways that Bobby should be assassinated. High-powered rifle, plastic explosives at Hickory Hill, or maybe while traveling through the South, so it could be pinned on a segregationist. Hoffa would later deny all of that. At the time, though, he had no idea how much jeopardy he was in, because Grady Parton kept informing on his former friend, you know, to Walter Sheridan and the Get Hoffa Squad. And here's why Hoffa is not purely a victim. He was also, in the same period, trying to bribe the jury any way he could. And Parton was reporting all of this back to the Justice Department. Okay, so there are a few ironies here, but a big one is that Bobby's original case was so weak that Hoffa probably would have won it without the bribes. And even if he lost, it was only a misdemeanor. So he would have been able to avoid jail time almost certainly, and he probably could have also remained the president of the Teamsters. But Hoffa had to win, and so did Bobby. At this point, as I said, this is like the Burr-Hamilton feud. So after this acquittal, he gets the acquittal, by the way, in the Test Fleet case. Everything's looking good, but the Justice Department, because of Parton, now has the real goods on Hoffa. And they bring new charges against him in Chattanooga, Tennessee, for corrupting the jury in Nashville. This was 1964. Seven years into his feud with Jimmy Hoffa, Bobby Kennedy finally got his man. But it was not an entirely clean victory. First, I should say there's evidence now that Bobby illegally eavesdropped on Hoffa during the original trial in Nashville. My guest today, Jack Goldsmith, uncovered in his great book, a 1966 memo of conversation documenting a conversation between Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas and FBI Assistant Director Cartha Deke Deloche. According to the memo, Fortas asked him if there were any irregularities in Bobby's handling of the Hoffa case, and Deloche acknowledged that Bobby authorized the bugging of Hoffa's lawyer, James Haggerty, during the Nashville trial. This is, by the way, before we had a process for surveillance warrants. So it's a warrantless bugging of Hoffa's lawyer, you know, Fourth Amendment be damned. Robert Kennedy denied until his death that he ever authorized the bugging of Hoffa, but is a very lawyerly denial because he basically bugged him. Because in addition to Haggerty, the FBI also illegally surveilled and eavesdropped on Hoffa's wife, Patricia, his close ally, Sylvia Pagano, his aide, Chucky O'Brien, and his close mafia friend, Tony Giacalone. And this says nothing of the persistent physical surveillance of Hoffa during the Nashville trial, which basically meant that everywhere that Hoffa went, the F FBI men would tail him. Eventually, Jimmy Hoffa did take his case to the Supreme Court. He argued that using Parton as a mole inside of his camp was the equivalent of an illegal wiretrap. 
like a human bug, if you will. The Supremes ruled eight to one in the government's favor. But it's worth here reading from the one dissent in that case, which is Chief Justice Earl Warren. And I want to quote this, quote, here the government reaches into the jailhouse to employ a man who was himself facing indictments far more serious and later including one for perjury, than the one confronting the man against whom he offered to inform. It employed him not for the purpose of testifying to something that had already happened, but rather for the purpose of infiltration to see if crimes would in the future be committed. The government in its zeal even assisted him in gaining a position from which he could be a witness to the confidential relationship of attorney and client engaged in the preparation of a criminal defense. And for the dubious evidence thus obtained, the government paid an enormous price. End of quote. That's Chief Justice Earl Warren, people. All right. Another irony in all of this is that, as I said before, Hoff is not entirely clean. He's not a pure victim. Because Hoffa himself wiretapped his rivals all the time. We talked a little bit about this in the first episode, where there were two cases involving what are known as minophones in New York. But he would rely on the specialist for these matters, sort of a master wiretapper named Bernard Spindell. And he tried to eavesdrop on Bobby Kennedy. So here's a clip from an interview with Hoffa's attorney at the end of his life in the 1990s. His name is Bill Buffalino. If you watch The Irishman, this is the guy that Ray Romano plays. And here's Bill Buffalino acknowledging that Hoffa paid Spindell to tap Marilyn Monroe's apartment in order to catch RFK in bed with the actress. To what extent did Bernie Spindell eavesdrop on Marilyn Monroe and Robert Kennedy? What did he do? He... He bugged the phone at the junction box. They picked the locks. He and his crew picked the locks to our apartment. And they, they bugged certain areas, including a nightstand, the bed spring, or under the bed. Under the bed itself? Under the bed. It was a bug? Yeah. Under Trans Marilyn Monroe's Transmitter. Bed. And the receivers were outside the building. Okay, so at this point, we should say that Bobby Kennedy presided over a massive expansion of government surveillance. As my guest Jack Goldsmith explains in the interview, the initial justification for this snooping came under FDR and concerns about Nazi spies and saboteurs. And then the Justice Department determined that it should also apply to members of the U.S. Communist Party. Under President Eisenhower, the practice expanded again to suspected mafiosos under the dubious logic that they too presented a threat to national security. And then under Bobby Kennedy, the Bureau just ran wild. But it was working off of guidance from the last administration. So there was no paperwork where Bobby explicitly approves this warrantless surveillance. But there's also no way that Bobby didn't know about it. Of course he knew about it. He was reading the intelligence reports. And according to Jack Goldsmith, the FBI conducted 842 wiretaps, 374 bugs, when RFK was the attorney general, and that was far more than under his predecessor. Now, leaving aside the obvious constitutional problems with the expansion of warrantless break-ins and surveillance, members of the mob were still American citizens for the most part, with the same Fourth Amendment rights as anyone else, there was another complication, and this is the delicate matter of Cuba. In this period, the CIA was working with the very same mob figures the FBI was spying on, and that Bobby wanted to throw in the slammer. I think that Senator Kennedy's policies and recommendations for the handling of the Castro regime are probably the most dangerous, dangerously irresponsible recommendations that he's made during the course of this campaign. In effect, what Senator Kennedy recommends is that the United States government should give help 
to the exiles and to those within Cuba who oppose the Castro regime, provided they are anti-Batista. So that was Richard Nixon in the first televised presidential debate with John F. Kennedy. Both candidates in this moment were not being honest. What Nixon couldn't say, because it was a state secret, was that Kennedy's idea for America to back an exile force to overthrow Castro was already being planned by the CIA. And what Kennedy couldn't say in his criticisms of Nixon was that the Eisenhower administration was doing exactly what he said his bold new plan was. Well, it turns out that everyone was wrong. A few months into Kennedy's presidency, the CIA launched the disastrous Bay of Pigs with agency-trained Cuban exiles, and they were sadly slaughtered for the most part. Kennedy didn't want to acknowledge the American role in the operation, so he never provided the air support that the doomed partisans were led to believe was coming. Now, one might think this would have tempered America's plans to topple Castro, but this is the height of the Cold War, and Jack and Bobby Kennedy did not like to lose. After the debacle of the Bay of Pigs, Bobby gets more authority to oversee Cuba policy, and he ends up approving something known as Operation Mongoose. Obviously, Jack approved it too. This was really a continuation of the CIA's planning to knock off Castro under Eisenhower, but this time it had presidential and presidential brother attention, and more importantly, it had more resources. It would take nearly 15 years for the American people to learn the full extent of what the CIA had dreamed up during Operation Mongoose, but when the facts came out, it really did seem like something from an Ian Fleming spy novel. There was a plan, for example, to airdrop toilet paper with Castro's and Khrushchev's face on the sheets. Another plan was to distribute a doctored photo of Castro in a lavishly furnished room with two beautiful women near him, and the Spanish phrase for my ration was different. Now, that was just the psychological element of Operation Mongoose. There was also the assassination element of it as well. There were attempts on Castro's life, such as they planned to poison his cigars or lace his scuba suit with a rare fungus that would disfigure his skin. There is one element, though, of the CIA's plans for Cuba that I want to focus on, and it's one, by the way, that actually probably got furthest along. All right, so to lay the context here, I want to rewind to the weeks before the 1960 election, right at the time of that televised debate. In Las Vegas, at the Riviera Hotel, a housekeeper enters the suite of the comedian Dan Rowan to find wiretapping and bugging equipment strewn everywhere. She contacts the FBI, thinking that a crime has been committed. The Bureau investigates and they come across a former G-man named Robert Mayhew. At first, he tells his former colleagues that he was hired by an L.A. attorney to conduct the bugging of the room. Rowan was dating the singer Phyllis McGuire at the time, and Phyllis McGuire, in turn, was also dating, you guessed it, Sam Giancana. I know, yet another mafia love triangle. Okay, so that would have been that, except Mayhew changed his story on April 18th, 1961. That's the day after the Bay of Pigs fiasco becomes international news, and here... I want to quote again from Beverly Cage's fine biography of J. Edgar Hoover. Quote, In a shocking admission that quickly made its way up to Hoover's office, Mayhew confessed that the CIA had hired him as a liaison to the Chicago underworld in hopes the CIA and the mafia might join forces against Castro in Cuba. According to CIA thinking, the mob was already furious about Castro's seizure of casinos and crackdown on illicit business in Havana and would therefore make excellent partners for the U.S. government in its campaign to undermine Castro's fledgling regime, end quote. Now, let's just appreciate. This is nuts. It's so crazy that J. Edgar Hoover at first, he doesn't even believe it. But then 
the CIA's director of security, someone named Sheffield Edwards, confirms it to Hoover. Mayhew was telling the truth. He really was an intermediary between the spooks at Langley and Sam Giancana. Okay, well, this drove Hoover nuts, as one could imagine. And he decided at this point he needed to know everything there was about this cockamamie scheme. He sent out teams of agents to interview as many of the players as possible. And here I want to quote from Beverly Gage again, quote, in one especially fraught incident, a team of FBI men intercepted Giancana at Chicago's O'Hare Airport in hopes that a surprise confrontation might induce him to talk about his CIA cooperation. Enraged at being trapped near the plane's gate, Giancana indeed railed about Cuba. Warning, that the, quote, the United States government is not as smart as it would like to think it is, according to an FBI report. He also encouraged agents to take his threats, quote, to their boss, who in turn would report the results to their super boss, who would thereupon report to his super, super boss, by whom he apparently meant Hoover, Robert Kennedy, and John Kennedy. Quote, I know all about the Kennedys, he warned, and one of these days we're going to tell all, end quote. That's in an FBI report. I thought that was very important. So it's not clear whether Bobby Kennedy actually gave a direct order to assassinate Castro. We know that he was briefed by the CIA on elements of Operation Mongoose, including, after the fact, the plan to use mafia hitmen to assassinate the Cuban leader. And we also know that this Dick Helms was later CIA director at the time he was a very high up senior CIA guy, that Bobby was aware that they were seeking to unseat Castro through violent means. Now, Helms, in his memoir, writes... With all of the customary Kennedy vigor and in the most forceful language, Bob informed us that Castro's removal from office and a change in government in Cuba were then the prime foreign policy objectives of the Kennedy administration. The repeated references to eliminating Castro brought us once again to the moral aberration of political assassination in peacetime, end quote. That's Dick Helms. So make of that what you will. Dick Helms certainly had an incentive to make it appear that he and the agency had top cover for Operation Mongoose. That said, as somebody who has covered the FBI and the CIA for more than 20 years, it's very rare that the CIA does anything like this without explicit approval from a president. So I would tend to believe Helms on this one, even though, again, I acknowledge that he would have some motivation there to say that Bobby knew all of this. Now, Kennedy, remember, he campaigned on getting tough on Castro. And after the Bay of Pigs, there is no evidence that the Kennedys changed their mind on this. And by this point, Bobby was also kind of basically functioning as deputy president. So when he was brief about that mafia plot in particular, his only comment, according to the Church Commission and other things, was that he should have been kept in the loop earlier, not you can't assassinate a foreign leader. That's not what I had in mind. I mean, so I really do think that Bobby absolutely knew that the CIA was trying to kill Fidel Castro, and that's what he wanted. Mr. Kennedy, before you were even born... I heard that very same argument from a Mr. Mitchell Palmer. Do you know what it took to change his mind? A bomb. Now, I, I do not want that to happen to you or your brother, sir. There's no reason we, we, we both can't get what we want. We can wage a war on two fronts, sir. You understand? You can go now, Mr. Hoover. All right, so that was a clip from the movie J. Edgar with the great Leonardo DiCaprio as uh, J. Edgar Hoover. And in that scene, Hoover is trying to persuade the attorney general of the merits of hunting communists at home, and Bobby is skeptical. The reality is that Bobby was still very much of a, a commie hunter when he was the attorney general, though towards the end of his tenure, he began to change his views, but he was still very much in the mold of the McClellan guy. What that scene, however, does capture well is the animosity 
between the Attorney General Bobby Kennedy and FBI Director Jager Hoover. At first, things were somewhat promising for their relationship. Bobby met with Hoover in 1960 during the presidential transition and asked if he should take the job, which would be Hoover's boss, and Hoover told him that he should, a decision, by the way, that Hoover would regret. And one can see how, in some ways, Hoover and Bobby had a similar outlook. Both had cop personalities, both hated communists. And while Hoover was slow to recognize the existence of a national mafia, by the time Bobby moved into the Department of Justice, Hoover clearly understood there was a national mafia. There was something known as the Appalachian. It's a wonderful story. Maybe we'll do an episode on that at a later point, but sort of to sum things up very quickly, a local, like, statey policeman in upstate New York managed to sort of stumble on the biggest La Cosa Nostra national meeting ever. And the FBI kind of understood at that point that it could not no longer credibly say there is no such thing as sort of a national mafia organization. Okay. And so anyway, the point is, is that Jagger Hoover, he'd already established what he'd called the top hoodlum program that was intended to go after mob leaders by the time that Bobby was there. All of that said, their relationship was probably doomed. So why do I say that? Okay. So first of all, Jagger Hoover was 30 years older than Bobby Kennedy. So I don't know if you've ever had a boss that was a lot younger than you. 30 years is a lot. It's That's automatically off the bat. That's a tough dynamic. Okay, also, you know, Hoover was born into a family of middle-class civil servants. He attended George Washington University. He was not really a fancy person. He certainly wasn't an aristocrat. And even though Hoover did have a relationship with Joe Kennedy, at one point, Joe offered him a job to be his kind of personal chief of security. They really did come from very different worlds. Bobby... Well, he was an American aristocrat, as we know. He was a Harvard man. And as somebody who came from the upper class, Bobby often would flout rules that everyone else would have to follow. That's a, that's a common thing among people who come from the super elite. For example, Bobby had a smelly Newfoundland dog given to him by the great satirist James Thurber named Brumus. He would bring Brumus into his office at the Justice Department on most days, and Brumus would urinate to mark his territory. Anyway, one day, Brumus, according to Beverly Gage's biography, quote, deposited a steaming pile, end of quote, outside of the reception area that led into J. Edgar Hoover's office. And this led the FBI director to call an executive conference to discuss RFK's flouting of the prohibition on bringing animals into federal buildings. Now, if you can imagine, Hoover is so angry that he brings in like FBI lawyers to talk about, well, didn't he violate, what statutes is the attorney general violating by bringing his dog into the office like this? Another example, by the way, of this early tension between Bobby and Hoover was Bobby's installation of a buzzer on Hoover's desk so that he could summon the FBI director at the push of a button. Hoover saw the contraption at first and he ordered staff to reinstall it at the desk of his secretary, Helen Gandy. Bobby found out about that and had it moved back to Hoover's personal desk which is where it stayed for a while. One more story. Bobby once brought his children into the office on a weekend and allowed them to rummage through Hoover's personal papers at his office, which is another thing that drove Hoover nuts. Strike three. At this point, Hoover instructs his G-men to answer direct questions from the attorney general and his staff, but to provide no special favors, as he said, to the Kennedys. It's hard to know what to make of that because Hoover, as we discussed earlier, did warn JFK about Judith Campbell, he also went along with Bobby's focus on the mafia, though he did manage to kill another Bobby initiative, which would be what a, a national crime commission that would set the budget and priorities for the FBI. As the Kennedy administration in its first few years began to stumble on integration in the South, Hoover was often reluctant, resisting calls for the FBI to provide protection for civil rights workers, including Martin Luther King. Okay, 
I should say, on Martin Luther King, Hoover. We got into this, by the way, in the great OG Man episode from a few back with where I interviewed Beverly Gage. But Hoover did not like Martin Luther King. It should be said here that Hoover, of course, presents Bobby with the initial intelligence that compelled the attorney general to approve a wiretap on King's lawyers, aides, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. As I said in the OG Man episode, where I really do get into much more detail on this, the Bureau did have solid intelligence that one of King's advisors, someone named Stanley Levison, was a secret financier of the American Communist Party, and that Levinson had gone to somewhat great lengths to obscure that fact from both the public and others, including, I think, King. Initially, Bobby and Jack Kennedy tried to persuade Martin Luther King to cut ties with Stanley Levinson, but King still kept him close. So anyway, much later, after Bobby is out of at least the federal government, the FBI does try to blackmail King and urge him to commit suicide based on some of the wiretaps and buggings of the civil rights leader, which is obviously a vile moment in American history. But I should say that part of it, this terrible behavior, really the Kennedys had zero to do with it. There's no evidence that they knew what the FBI was doing all of that. As I said, Jack was already assassinated by then. Okay, the main point here is that Hoover chafed under Bobby Kennedy. But what could he do? Because at this point, in the early 60s, Bobby had the power and Bobby Kennedy was still Hoover's boss. So one element of Bobby's growing power in his brother's administration, it was social, it was subtle. Bobby hosted some of the best parties in Washington at the time in his estate known as Hickory Hill. Guests included everyone from Isaiah Berlin to Ambassador Avril Harriman. In 1968, by the way, John Lennon went to one of these parties too. There was a great pool at this estate. There was a stable for their horses. The Kennedys had a menagerie of various pets, some of which were exotic, that his children and his wife Ethel cared for for a time. There was even a sea lion that lived in the Kennedy pool. And I would say in the early 1960s, at least, the dinner parties at Hickory Hill was ground zero for Washington's in-crowd. Right. Now, this kind of social pecking order exists to this day in Washington, D.C. It's not unusual for columnists, ambassadors, Supreme Court justices, generals, all to share an evening together of food and cocktails off the record at a Georgetown townhouse or an estate in Maryland or Virginia. Part of the fun is not only noticing who else is at these soirees, but who was not invited. And this gets at one of the ways that Bobby tormented his old rival, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who by now is Jack Kennedy's vice president which is a little bit like being elected the mayor of Nothingburg, because the vice president in Jack Kennedy's administration had no real power. Bobby and Ethel rarely invited Lyndon and Lady Bird to their parties, which would almost always be written up in the society pages. It was like one of those things like, hey, were you, did you hear about this crazy party at the Hickory Hill? Wow. And when the Johnsons did get their rare invite, they would be seated at what Ethel Kennedy would call the loser's table. Anyway, at these dinner parties, the in-crowd would mock the Texan mercilessly. They called Lyndon Johnson Rufus Cornpone behind his back. Robert Caro, in his latest Johnson biography, puts Time Magazine's Hugh Sidey, again, who called the mockery of the Veep at these parties, quote, just awful, inexcusable, really. Caro goes on, at one party, to overwhelming merriment, Bobby was presented with a voodoo effigy of Lyndon Johnson for him to stick pins into, end of quote. Another party where Johnson was in attendance was a particularly cruel humiliation for the former Senate Majority Leader. Caro sets the scene up as follows, quote, 
Two middle-level administration officials, Ron Linton and John J. Riley, were chatting at a cocktail party when Linton realized that someone was standing next to them wanting to be part of the conversation. The listener was Lyndon Johnson. They didn't stop talking. After a while, Johnson walked away. And when Linton said, John, I think we just insulted the vice president of the United States, Riley blurted out, fuck him, loud enough for Johnson to hear. Whirling around, he stared at the two men for a moment. But what was there to say? Turning again, he walked away. End quote. You know, those few years in the early 60s when Johnson was the vice president, they were a rough time for Lyndon Johnson, you could say. All right, so all of this exclusion, it really stung Johnson. He grew up in the hill country of Texas in a family that never had enough money and was consistently and constantly made aware of its social inferiority. Lyndon Baines Johnson, much like Richard Nixon, well, he had a chip on his shoulder. He referred to the Kennedy crowd resentfully as the Harvards. Johnson attended San Marcos Teacher College, by the way. He didn't have all the advantages of a young Bobby Kennedy. He had to earn his station in life. Nonetheless, Johnson was also a pragmatist, and he really had a genius for understanding power. And he understood that he had far more to gain from being friends with Bobby Kennedy than from being enemies. And so Johnson had a kind of superpower when it came to ingratiating himself to people that he needed. He would mix flattery and neediness to almost force his way into the good graces of someone who he was trying to befriend. He decided in this case to swallow his pride and he did his best to make amends with Bobby Kennedy. So this is a remarkable scene from Robert Caro again, and it's describing Johnson's efforts to patch things up with the attorney general. It's January 1963, and it's after a White House dinner party when Bobby and a few other guests were in an upstairs kitchen making a midnight snack of scrambled eggs. Here's Caro relying on an interview with Kennedy family friend Charles Spaulding. Quote, approaching the attorney general, Johnson said, I don't understand you, Bobby. Your father likes me. Your brother likes me. But you don't like me. Now, why? Why don't you like me? Bobby, in the recollection of Charles Spaulding, one of the other guests in the kitchen, quote, agreed to the accuracy of all this. But Johnson wouldn't let it drop. Why? He kept asking. Why don't you like me? He was begging, crowding against Bobby, and Bobby kept retreating and letting him beg. Quote, it was a role Bobby was enjoying. The discussion was completely in his favor and in his hand, Spaulding says. And although Johnson asked the questions, quote, again and again, it seemed that Spaulding, this went on for hours. Why don't you like me? I don't understand it now. Why? Bobby wouldn't answer them. End of quote. That's the passage. Now, finally, Lyndon Johnson takes another tack. He tells Bobby, I know why you don't like me. It was his attacks on Joe Kennedy, which we got into in part one of this episode. Johnson now began denying everything, and he said he was misquoted at the 1960 convention when he allegedly gave a speech to the Washington state delegation in which he repeatedly called Joe Kennedy, and I'm quoting here, a Chamberlain umbrella man. That's referring to Neville Chamberlain, who famous peace in our time and made the Munich Agreement, appeased Hitler. Anyway. And Johnson in this, like, you know, he loved to sort of talk about all this stuff. And, he, and Ferelich allegedly said, I never thought Hitler was right. Anyway, these were widely quoted remarks at the time. So, you know, remember, Bobby Kennedy is the campaign manager. Bobby Kennedy is trying to convince, you know, Johnson not to go on the ticket with his brother. He's aware of all this at the time. He knows all this. Anyway, and it, it was even in the New York Times. So Bobby just sort of stood there while Johnson is sort of saying all this stuff. And when Johnson was done, he turned to his aide, John Siegenthaler who in 1960 was covering the convention for the Nashville Tennessean. And he asked if he remembered what Johnson said at the time. And Siegenthaler, according to Cara, repeated the Umbrella Man remarks word for word. He's lying, he told Bobby. That's just brutal, is it not? 
from Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. When Jack Kennedy died, the whole country was really in a state of shock, but I think it hit Bobby the hardest. Jack Kennedy was his best friend. It was one of his idols. And the other thing is that Bobby didn't really have time to mourn because, you know, after his father was incapacitated from that stroke, he was now the head of the Kennedy family. So he arranged for everything. He comforted Jackie, Jack Kennedy's widow. He made sure that his niece and nephew were comforted in all of this. And when the mourning and the funeral was done, and Bobby sort of had done his duty, well, he fell into a very deep depression. And I don't want to dwell on the assassination too much. There's a lot more to do on this at some point. I might bring in my, our friend Michael Moynihan to talk about this. But in keeping with the themes of these episodes, I want to point out a couple things. And it's the role of two of Bobby's enemies in all of this. One is that he learned that his brother was dead from J. Edgar Hoover. This is one of these things where it's like, what a moment to learn your brother is murdered. And J. Edgar Hoover kind of did this bloodlessly with no emotion. He offered no calming words or sympathy. He just delivered this news in like monotone bullet points in a briefing. Bobby would later say that Hoover delivered the news that, that his brother was murdered as if he was discussing, you know, finding a communist infiltrator and in the faculty of Howard University. Okay, then about an hour after JFK was confirmed to be dead, Lyndon Johnson calls Bobby Kennedy entirely tone deaf to ask if he had any objection to him being sworn in as the new president right then and there. Obviously, this is a very hard time for Bobby Kennedy, but it's, it doesn't, you know, in moments like that, you sort of, you know, you'll never forget. His memories are, you know, Hoover delivering this, you know, bloodlessly, and then Lyndon Johnson asking, is it okay if I take over at this moment? Okay. So at Jackie Kennedy's recommendation, Bobby then spends a lot of time in the months following his brother's assassination, reading the Greek tragedies like Sophocles and Aeschylus. He also is reading the existentialists like Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre. And, you know, he's, he's really turning inward. And you can sort of tell, as the attorney general in this period, he's lacking that energy that sort of defines him, that peripatetic, you know, constant motion. It's almost like he's sleepwalking. It was a very grim time for Bobby Kennedy. And the other thing is, his power was significantly diminished. Remember, we talked about the fact that before this point, when his brother is, you know, the president, he was like the deputy president. Now, not so much. Hoover, on the day after Johnson is sworn in, removes the buzzer in his office and places it back on his secretary, Helen Gandy's desk. He would no longer be summoned by a man nearly half of his age. And Hoover also starts briefing Lyndon Johnson directly about updates from the FBI and doing this behind the attorney general's back. I want to play now a revealing phone call between now President Lyndon Johnson and Bobby Kennedy, while he's still the attorney general from July 21st, 1964, on the prospect of getting the FBI to provide security for Martin Luther King in the South. Uh, can we have FBI people there and uh, have them uh, uh, keeping their eyes and ears open and yeah. preceding him and following him probably? Well, it's difficult just the preceding and following. Uh, then, uh, I suppose we can. Again, my, I have no dealings with the FBI anymore, but, but I think maybe the awesome perhaps they did he, did he? Okay, so first of all, notice Bobby totally sounds deflated at this point. He's resigned. Also, Bobby acknowledges here that he has no dealings anymore with J. Edgar Hoover. He asks Johnson to request the security for King, tacitly admitting that the director of the FBI now ignores the attorney general. Extraordinary. But I understand that, you know, he sends all kinds of reports over to you to, 
about me and about the Department of Justice. Not any that I've seen. What well, are you talking about? Well, I just understand that, that uh, he's about me planning and plotting things. No, and, uh, no, he hadn't, uh, he hadn't sent me a report that I, that I remember. Okay, in this part of the call, Bobby confronts the president. He says he understands that Jagger Hoover is backdooring him and his department to the president. By the way, that was absolutely true. And notice, Johnson then proceeds to gaslight Bobby. But this lie is much different than the pathetic groveling lie from that late night at the White House kitchen when Johnson is trying to deny that he ever said bad things about Joe Kennedy. This time, it's Bobby that is reduced to the supplicant. He has no choice but to pretend to take the president's word for it, and I can imagine it must have just eaten him up inside. Anyway, Bobby was not long for that job as attorney general. It was never going to work with Johnson being the president, and Johnson, meanwhile, was still worried that Bobby might get it in his head to challenge him in 1964 for the presidency, and he's kind of obsessed with this. Well, Bobby Kennedy ends up sparing Lyndon Johnson. He decides instead to run for the Senate in New York. By 2023 standards, Bobby got into this race very late. He announced his campaign on August 25th, 1963. That's just nine weeks before Election Day. Here's a snippet from the kickoff speech. Our traditional aspirations for peace and for prosperity, for justice and for decency, are being called into question. All that President Kennedy stood for, all that President Johnson is trying to accomplish, all the progress that has been made is threatened by a new and dangerous Republican assault. The campaign did not start with a bang, I should say. Bobby, he was an awkward candidate. He was used to being the crusading prosecutor, like he was on the McClellan Committee, or the man behind the scenes, like the campaign manager. But now he had to find his own voice. He had to be out front. And there was also this perception that he was a carpetbagger. His main residence in 1964 was at Hickory Hill in Virginia, The Nation magazine chastised Bobby for not running for the seat there, which might have knocked off the segregationist Harry Byrd. Instead, he chose New York, where his Republican opponent was Kenneth Keating, a liberal Republican who supported civil rights and even backed RFK when he was nominated for the attorney general. I mean, Kenneth Keating had even been a guest at Hickory Hill. And while Bobby spent a lot of his childhood in New York, the Kennedys moved to Bronxville in the early 1930s. He spoke with the aristocratic Boston accent of his brothers. It was an odd fit. On an early campaign stop in Oneida, he was given a slice of pizza and proceeded to ask for a fork. Now, in Manhattan, in Lower East Side, he visited a Jewish deli, and instead of ordering a blintz or perhaps a bagel and lox or maybe some herring, he ordered sliced melon and split pea soup. But Bobby also had a few things that were going for him. First of all, there's the Kennedy name. He was enormously popular in New York because his brother was loved in New York. And there were times on the campaign where he was treated like a beetle. Enormous crowds would show up at these campaign stops just to touch his hand or his garment. After a day on the trail, Bobby would often have to soak his swollen hands in ice water. Another thing is that Kenneth Keating also made a Lyndon Johnson-style mistake. He accused Bobby of cutting a deal to pay off a Nazi front as attorney general. This was a massive misrepresentation of what actually had happened, and it backfired. Bobby had actually settled a case that the Eisenhower Justice Department was trying to close for many years. Keating himself had introduced legislation that made the settlement possible, and the New York Times even and other papers accused the Keating camp of playing dirty pool. The New York Times in the 1960s, I should say, was not necessarily a pro-Bobby Kennedy paper, so that was something in and of itself. And Bobby, you know, also twisted the knife in this case, and According to Larry Ty's great biography, when Keating made his attack, he responded, you know, I lost a brother. 
and a brother-in-law to the Nazis. What are you talking about? Keating also made another mistake, and this is a, towards the end of the campaign. Initially, Bobby didn't want to debate Keating because he thought that he would come off as a bully. You have to understand, Keating was older, he was courtly, he seemed like a very nice old man. And Bobby, you know, he was used to just carving people up, you know, from his days prosecuting the mafia and the Teamsters and so forth. So Keating purchased airtime in the major New York television markets to debate an empty chair. I don't know, this is a classic technique. I don't even remember Clint Eastwood did this at one of the Republican conventions. I think it was like in 2008, you know, debating the empty chair. Okay. Now, Bobby eventually changed his mind. And what he decided to do was a great political stunt. He went to the television studio and demanded to debate Keating as he was doing his little empty chair thing. Now, he didn't get his wish, but what he did get was footage of the candidate trying to enter the studio and then being blocked by Keating's campaign workers. And so this story that was supposed to be, you know, Senator Keating debates an empty chair, you know, Bobby Kennedy's ducking the debate, became instead that Keating was ducking a debate because Bobby, you know, marched down there himself. Anyway, Bobby also had two other really big advantages. He had his father's fortune, which spared no expense for the campaign. And I mean, it was lavish. The campaign chartered flights just to fly footage to local news stations before the 6 p.m. broadcast so they could get Bobby on the nightly news, wherever it was, from like Rochester to New York City. Bobby's campaign paid for babysitters, by the way, for the volunteers. He spent $1 million on TV ads, which was a king's ransom in 1964. And finally, Bobby had his nemesis, Lyndon Johnson, who was delighted to campaign for Bobby Kay for the Senate after being spared a primary challenge. So, you know, this is one of these things about politicians is that they can have these long simmering rivalries, but they will put it aside when it suits their purposes. The country needs Robert Kennedy in Washington. His knowledge of slum clearance, his knowledge in fighting crime, his knowledge in education, his knowledge in bringing peace to the world is what Brooklyn needs voting in the United States Senate. Okay, it's not all peaches and cream. Lyndon Johnson would tell crowds, for example, I want you to elect my boy, and Bobby would hate, just hated that. And when Bobby won, he managed to thank everybody in his victory speech except for Lyndon Johnson. But for nine weeks in the fall of 1964, these two bitter rivals put aside their animosity and cooperated. So in this period, between JFK's assassination and Bobby's victory in the Senate, which is a little more than a year, Many historians argue that the man himself was transformed. It was Bobby's chrysalis. This is when Bobby Kennedy turns on the Vietnam War. This is when Bobby takes up the cause of ending hunger and poverty. It's when he aligns himself with Cesar Chavez and his movement to achieve dignity for the migrant farm workers of California. As Larry Ty, his biographer, says, this is when Bobby's character morphed from tough to tender. I think there's a lot of merit to that assessment, but I respectfully dissent. I think that what we're seeing here is that Bobby Kennedy remains who he always was. And I, you know, said in the first episode, he was a cop. You could also sort of say, similar to a cop, he's a paladin, which is to say he is a knight for righteous causes. It's just that in this case, in this period when he's a senator in 65 and 66 and 67, he's expanding the causes for which he was willing to fight. And what I mean here is that when Bobby was prosecuting Jimmy Hoffa or leaking out opposition research to help Jack Kennedy win the Democratic primary, he was always fighting for what he believed was a moral cause. And much of the time, it really was. International communism was evil. So was segregation. So was the mafia. These are the kind of great causes of the first half of Bobby's career. So it's not that Bobby had an epiphany. I don't think you could say he switched sides. Though he did come to change his mind, obviously, on the Vietnam War. Rather, 
He learned about new evils, and he felt compelled to vanquish them, just as he felt compelled to vanquish the scourge of communism and union corruption before. So along those lines, I want to give two vivid examples from this period when Bobby's a senator, and you could say, yes, he's expanding the causes for which he is now going to become a fighter. All right, so it's now March of 1967, and Bobby had learned that black communities living in the Mississippi Delta were so poor they could not afford the $2 monthly fee for food stamps. It was almost in that, an unbelievable thing. So he decided he had to see it for himself. And when he arrived a month later for a field hearing in Jackson, Mississippi, his plane was greeted at the airport by Ku Klux Klan protesters. After this field hearing, Bobby and the chairman of that Senate committee, Joe Clark, traveled to the Delta to see this poverty for themselves. Here's Larry Ty's description of the scene. And I'm going to read this. I think it's well worth it. Quote, a shotgun shack where daylight shone through cracks in the floor and ceiling, and the only item in the refrigerator was a jar of peanut butter. Fifteen people called it home. The stench was a nauseating brew of mildew and outhouse. Children huddled out front clad in rags that barely covered the open sores on their arms and legs. What did you have for breakfast, Bobby asked a young boy. Molasses, he said. For supper? Molasses. For lunch? Don't have no lunch. A large, ancient-looking woman in baggy clothes thanked the senators for their offer to help, but explained that she was too old to wait. How old was she, Bobby asked? I'm 33. I've been to third world countries and I've never seen anything like this, Bobby whispered to his aide Peter Aylman as they trekked across a field of uncut grass to another weather-beaten hovel. End of quote. The scene of deprivation, well, it infuriated Bobby Kennedy. He hated the fact that any American should live in such squalor, and that hatred motivated him. He got results. The Department of Health and Human Services changed the rule that required families to purchase food stamps. And it was in this moment that Bobby became a crusader against hunger in America. And a similar story accounts for Bobby's adoption of the cause of migrant farm workers. It's now the fall of 1967, and Bobby travels with fellow New York Senator Jacob Javits to a farm outside of Rochester. Larry Ty's biography says that there was a sign that warned that any trespassers would be shot, but Bobby went ahead with this small delegation anyway. What he found was shocking. Three migrant families were living in an abandoned bus. In place of seats, there were filthy mattresses. The windows were covered with cardboard and wood. Here's how Ty describes the scene. Quote, Bobby trembled with rage as he confronted the owner of the camp, Jay DeBats, who was carrying a gun and looked as if he meant what his sign said. Quote, you had no right to go in there, DeBats yelled at the senator. You're just a do-gooder trying to make some headlines. Bobby looked back in disbelief, then raged in a near whisper. You are something out of the 19th century. I wouldn't put an animal in those buses. End of quote. Again, it's the experience of injustice that fuels a righteous rage. This is how Bobby operated. Something like this also forced him to reconsider his support for the Vietnam War. When his brother was president, Bobby was a hawk. Like his brother's advisor, he supported the counterinsurgency doctrine for Vietnam, some of which would be familiar to anyone following the Iraq War. Bobby believed the communists were evil and that America was offering the country a chance to govern itself. By 1965, though, Bobby began to see the futility of the Vietnam War. At first, he proposed a middle way. That year, he suggested giving the Viet Cong a stake in the South Vietnamese government, an idea that earned him rebukes from the right as well as the leader of his own party, Lyndon Johnson. In early 1967, Bobby then made what would be a last appeal to Lyndon Johnson. He was in Paris for peace talks and had learned from the North Vietnamese delegation that there was an opening for negotiations if Johnson ended his bombing of the North. It's now February, and he conveyed this message to the president in a face-to-face -face meeting, and Johnson was having none of it. He accused Bobby of leaking word of this peace offer to the press. 
Bobby denies it and said the leak probably came from your State Department. Johnson, who was convinced that the State Department was staffed by Kennedy loyalists, shot back, it's not my State Department, goddammit, it's your State Department, end of quote. And then Johnson assured Bobby that the war would be over by the summer, adding, I'll destroy you and every one of your dove friends in six months, end of quote. So that was it. A few days later, on March 2nd, 1967, Bobby Kennedy gives a speech on the floor of the Senate and he expresses contrition. Quote, three presidents have taken action in Vietnam as one who was involved in many of those decisions. I can testify that if fault is to be found or responsibility assessed, there is enough to go around for all, including myself, he said. Okay, now that Bobby had ended his equivocations on Vietnam, he was positioned to be the anti-war leader at the moment America itself was turning on the war. Inside Johnson's own administration, dissidents contacted Bobby. I didn't know this before reading Ty's biography, but before leaking the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times in 1971, Daniel Ellsberg reached out to Bobby Kennedy when he was a senator in 1967, providing classified assessments that exposed the falsehood of the official Pentagon spin about the war. Robert McNamara, JFK's and LBJ's Secretary of Defense, was privately turning on the war too, and he would slip Bobby information as well. Okay, so one might think here that RFK is in a prime position to challenge LBJ as the peace candidate in 1968, something that, by the way, he would eventually do. But Bobby was a bit like Hamlet. He starts calling his friends, like other columnists, like, hey, should I run? What do you think? He really couldn't decide. And in his indecision, he left an opening for another Catholic senator, and this one named Eugene McCarthy. And Gene McCarthy entered the race in 1968 as a single-issue candidate and the war in Vietnam. That was a campaign song for the anti-war candidate, performed by Peter, Paul, and Mary. It was an odd kind of movement. This was 1968, so we're now in the midst of a full flowering of cultural and political radicalism, but McCarthy's campaign went out of its way to be straight-edge. The expression was, clean for Gene. If you showed up with long hair or a beard to volunteer, the campaign would turn you back and tell you to get a shave and a haircut. I kind of like that. Now, no one quite knew in the beginning of 1968 how far an anti-war candidate would get against an incumbent president, but the primary in New Hampshire exposed Johnson's hollow support. His strategy to escalate the war in order to end it on favorable terms was dividing his own party, let alone the entire country. By any political measure, President Johnson has suffered a major psychological setback in New Hampshire. So, McCarthy ended up getting 42% of the votes in New Hampshire to Johnson's 48%. This changes everything. I run for the presidency because I want the Democratic Party and the United States of America to stand for hope instead of despair, for reconciliation of men instead of the growing risk of world war. So that was Bobby come lately. It was already March 16, 1968. McCarthy and his supporters were fuming. He was sandbagged. Bobby risked dividing the anti-war vote. The press secretary, by the way, at this point for Lady Bird Johnson had a terrific quip, I have to repeat it, after Bobby's announcement. It took Bobby Kennedy 15 years to finally come out against McCarthy, and it was the wrong one. Isn't that good? That's a good line. And here is McCarthy responding to Bobby's belated entry into the 1968 primary. Uh, all I have to, to run on is my commitment, uh, and what I thought was my integrity as I committed it to people who were prepared to raise this challenge against the Johnson administration at a time when it seemed to me a lot of other politicians were afraid to come down into the playing field. They were 
They were willing to stay up on the, on the, on the mountains and light uh, signal fires and bonfires and dance in the light of the moon. All right. Well, I think Gene McCarthy and his supporters have a legitimate grievance here. On the other hand, you know, politics ain't beanbag. And Senator McCarthy was a very nice guy. He was smart. He was beloved by the intellectuals. He was honest. He showed real courage to take on the leader of his own party when no one else would. But, you know, here's what I'm trying I guess I would point out as the very end of this part two here. It's precisely Bobby Kennedy's rougher qualities, his cunning, his ruthlessness, that put him in a different class. Because there was no way Clean Gene was going to beat Richard Nixon in 1968. But a hardballer like Bobby, driven by righteous rage, who knew Nixon's weaknesses from the 1960 campaign, who was never afraid to knife an adversary when it counted, well, that's the kind of man who wins elections. That's the kind of man who can end a war. That was Bobby Kennedy in 1968. And then, in a flash, he was gone. Senator Kennedy has been Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Oh my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Bobby was now a martyr. And to me, this is the part of the story that still defies reason. He was killed on the one-year anniversary of Israel's six-day war by a Palestinian lunatic named Sirhan Sirhan. Now he was one of dozens of senators who voted for arming Israel in the middle of a war that threatened to negate it. And when one considers all of the enemies that Bobby accumulated in his public life, the mafia, the unions, the Cubans, communists, the list really could go on, segregationists in the South, the Ku Klux Klan, it is, I don't know, it's tragic, it's strange, it's inexplicable that it would be Sirhan Sirhan who would be the one to kill him for something that wasn't even a major issue for Bobby, really? I mean, Bobby Kennedy, in that final campaign of his life, wanted to end poverty, he wanted to end the Vietnam War, and he wanted to push a new coalition of the working class, minorities. I mean, Israel really wasn't on the list of stuff that he cared about that much. I mean, not to say he supported Israel. It's just to say, really, that was, the, that was what got him. It's just still inexplicable. And it makes it even harder to explain, because you know, this is somebody who is the devoted son of an anti-Semite, Joe Kennedy, who didn't want America to enter World War II. We talked about that in the first episode, who would privately call Jews sheenies, which was like an Irish you know, slur for Jews. And yet Bobby Kennedy really does become a victim of anti-Semitism because Sirhan Sirhan is motivated by anti-Semitic rage. That is what drove him to this horrific act of violence. Well, it's, as I said, inexplicable. And more than a half a century later, it is still heartbreaking. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for Well, the re-education is really honored to have Harvard Law School professor Jack Goldsmith, who is really something of a renaissance man, who has written, in my view, a wonderful book that is both memoir and history called In Hoffa's Shadow. And it is about a very personal relationship of his, I guess you could say, surrogate father or real, you know, his, the person who, the, the man who raised him as a father, Chucky O'Brien, who was one of the important aides, Jimmy Hoffa. But it gets in also to his experience, having worked for the Justice Department, 
of what Bobby Kennedy's tenure as the attorney general, what what he was able to do. And, and it's I, I cannot recommend the book enough. We obviously cited it in both monologues. So, Jack, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start off. Who is Chucky O'Brien to you and who is Chucky O'Brien to the world, so to speak? Or Chucky O'Brien to me was my second stepfather. He was a man that my mother married in June of 1975 when I was 12 years old. He had been living in Detroit and he came into my life about six months before that. And from the moment he did, he was just a wonderful father and parent to me. So that's who he was to me. And he continued to be a great father. He, throughout my teenage years, six weeks after my mother married him, Jimmy Hoffa disappeared famously, infamously, July 30th, 1975, from a suburban parking lot in, excuse me, a parking lot in suburban Detroit. And Chucky is known to the world because, A, he was Hoffa's closest confidant for decades, right-hand man. Many people thought he was his illegitimate son. And from about the first week after the disappearance until today, he has been the leading suspect in the crime, the person who is widely believed to have picked up Hoffa and driven him to his death that afternoon. Spoiler alert, if you, when you, at the end of Jack's fantastic book, I think there's overwhelming evidence that it's a bum rap on Chucky. I mean, I don't know what, we should just get that out very quickly, but why do you think it's just, yeah. he was not there? Yeah. So I actually go through yeah. a ton of evidence in the book and I won't get into all that here. But there's so the reason that Chucky was suspected primarily, just to cut to the chase without getting into too much detail, is because he did not have a great alibi for the for the afternoon of the disappearance. And he was driving a car that afternoon who that was owned by the son of the leading mob suspect. And that seemed like too much of a coincidence for Chucky not to have been involved. The absence of a, an alibi, he was driving this car. And also later, they found a hair in the car that matched Hoppe's DNA, and they thought that was clinching evidence. And I'm not going to go through all the details unless you want me to, but there's all sorts of reasons, circumstantial reasons, and implausible. Well, we have to go evidence. to everything, but I think the most compelling is that the FBI agents who led the investigation yeah. no longer FBI, believed after yeah. a certain time that he was the exactly. leading suspect. Exactly. He was the leading suspect for a long time, but basically what the world today knows about the Hoffa investigation is what the FBI thought in 1975 and 1976 when some documents leaked. And the whole popular culture understanding of the Hoffa disappearance is based on that. A lot has happened inside the government, which I document, to explain why the government came to believe, the FBI came to believe that Chucky was not the person who picked him up. It could not have been the person. And I, the piece of evidence you're talking about at the end of the book is I go through a very careful timeline based on grand jury evidence. That makes it, I don't claim that it proves that he couldn't have done it, but it makes it extremely implausible that he could have, given the known times where he was at certain places, makes it extremely implausible he could have done it. There are other reasons why he couldn't have done it. But I, I agree that the FBI no longer thinks he did it. So that, but the world doesn't know that, at least in, unless they read my book. Well, they, and if, as, as they should. Okay, now let's, now that we've sort of established Chucky O'Brien, and he is, I mean, maybe just a little bit, not, what a great character. He's a former boxer. He's somebody who you wouldn't, he's not educated. No. Terrible with money. Yes. But had a kind of street smarts that was admirable and could, 
could judge people very quickly. I mean, how would you describe? I just I'm I, you you know you you say it very well in the book, but like talk a little bit about that, like you know how there there's these great qualities about him. He's a very yeah. loyal guy. Yeah, let me talk about his his defects first yeah. quickly. So he was he was kind of a screw up. He messed things up. He had terrible judgment sometimes. He couldn't. He was always in debt and. See, and he wasn't a very good labor organizer. He was in the Teamsters for much of his life. And yet, at the same time, he was Hoffa's closest aide, right-hand man, confidant, and basically Hoffa's, the person who did things for Hoffa when Hoffa really needed help. And he was also extremely close and loyal aide to the Detroit mobster, Anthony Giacalone, who was also the leading suspect. <laughs> so these two very consequential men I mean, Hoffa didn't suffer fools, and he knew about Chucky's foibles, but he kept him close to his side primarily because of Chucky's loyalty. Chucky was loyal to a fault, and it's nobody that he was more loyal to than Jimmy Hoffa and Anthony Giacalone. And when Hoffa asked him to do something, he did it. Hoffa also had was enormously – I mean, he loved Chucky. He called him his second son, even though he was his – wasn't his real son. And But his main virtue from Hoffa's perspective and from – the mob folks that he hung around with perspective was undying, absolute loyalty, yeah. undying commitment to silence and not thinking, not ratting. Omerta meant very much to him, even though he wasn't a member of the mob. So though that was his main value. He, you know, when Hoffa asked him to do something, he did it and he did it, you know, well. Right. Even though, you know, there's, there are, there are some stories in, in the book about how other people would sort of say, why is Chucky considered such a great guy? He always screws everything up. But Yeah, um, but, but, but Hoffa would laugh at that. Yeah. And he would always defend Chucky for his screw-ups. And, it, you know, Hoffa never advanced Chucky in the union because he wasn't good at, at labor organizing. But he kept Chucky around for what he was good at. And what he was good at was loyally carrying out orders, being a dutiful aide, and being a loving son. Right. And 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 it was something that Hoffa, who didn't trust anyone, desperately needed. Right, and he was a very good father to you. Yes, um, an extraordinary father to me at a time when you know his life was upside down because of the Hoffa disappearance. He Hoffa disappeared six weeks after he married my mother, and it drove my mother into all sorts of mental health problems. He was having this nightmarish experience with the government, and throughout all of this incredible pressure. Amazingly, I don't even know how he did it. He was an extraordinary father and, you know, really at, at a crucial point in my life just gave me stability, as strange as it seems. Well, and that stability led you to ultimately have an, a brilliant career in the law, which is an irony Yeah, that you would go on to work for the Justice Department and, you know, take, you know, become the Office of General Counsel. Maybe we'll have you on again. We can talk about Ashcroft or the War on Terror. But this show is about Bobby Kennedy. So let's start with a little bit of precedent here and talk about FBI wiretapping surveillance before the FISA reforms of the late 1970s, which what I mean to say is that these are based on kind of a hodgepodge of what well, I guess you'd say attorney general sort of rulings and Supreme Court understandings. Yeah. So it actually goes back to Franklin Roosevelt. So the question is, before Congress didn't start regulating wiretapping until the late 1960s for the first time, and wiretapping was going on for most of the 20th century before then, I think starting in the 1920s, I'm not exactly sure. 
And there were two forms, basically two forms of wiretapping for the middle of the century. One was electronic surveillance, when you basically pick up a wire from a telephone or something like that. And another was when you break into a residence, which is a trespass and a crime, and plant a bug there. So those are the two main forms of surveillance. And the executive branch did not have any affirmative authority to use these forms of surveillance, any obvious statutory authority. And there was a Supreme Court decision, I think it was 1940, 1939, 1940, that, that outlawed, that said the government could not use the fruits of wiretaps. And, and it basically, it's, it was interpreted by Robert Jackson, who was the attorney general, to say that the government can't wiretap. And this was a very important moment. That's why I'm going on about this in the history of this, because at that point, it was at the point when Roosevelt and Hoover were scared to death that there were saboteurs and spies in the United States, German saboteurs and spies. When Jackson outlawed the stop the government, i.e. stopped the FBI from using electronic surveillance, Hoover went to Roosevelt and said, if Jackson's ruling stands, I can't find the spies and saboteurs. So the front page of the New York Times says, Jackson says no government wiretapping. A couple of days later, Franklin Roosevelt secretly overrules Jackson and says that Hoover can continue wiretapping because national security requires it. And that's not what the Supreme Court had in mind. So that ruling, that, that, that decree, basically, that an executive order by Roosevelt is at the foundation of all of the subsequent surveillance. And basically what happened was that as they expanded surveillance from, first of all, spies and saboteurs in wartime to other types of subversives in the 40s and 50s, and then to mobsters who presented certain kinds of domestic threats. Well, that was a real leap when they went out. That was a leap. That was a leap. Yeah. But, and we could talk about that yeah. leap. But I just want to say that each step yeah. that was done was a step that was done because an attorney general in secret signed off on the expansion. So the original Roosevelt order was, just to put it kindly, legal un legally under-theorized. And then it was nothing but a bunch of conclusory memos by attorneys general, one or two pages long, to Hoover basically saying, yes, you can surveil in this context. Yes, you can surveil in that context. And it was all on an expanding national security rationale. Yes. So so that so that itself is very interesting, which is that you have, I mean, Chucky called this thing they have backup, meaning secret rulings within the executive branch that gave you authority to do things that the rest of us didn't know about. But that, that's part of backup. The other part is the government doesn't enforce criminal law against itself. Right. So the backup is they they're the ones that control the enforcement of the law. This first of all, Chucky was no legal scholar and he That's what that's why I said he had street smarts though because yeah, he street smart. Yeah, yeah. This is penetrating it's a perfect, insight. It's a perfect description. It yeah. took me a while to figure out what he meant by backup, but he basically meant the government's coming after us for violating the law, but they're violating the law and coming after us. It's happening in secret. They're interpreting the law to do all these nefarious things and nobody can enforce the law against them because they enforce they, they control the enforcement machinery. And his phrase for that was backup. Right. And that's what this is. That's why I wanted to, because when you really get into it, the history of this, what we call pre-FISA surveillance law, is insane. It's like, okay, a few people are deciding that you can now do this. Because originally, you could even, I mean, I could, I could argue it that when Article 2 of the Constitution gives the president the power, you know, to defend things in national security. So you could sort of say, all right, the first one was okay because we had to worry about a foreign power. 
how is the mafia not considered a foreign power? Those are usually American citizens, or for that matter, members of the Communist Party of the United States. If they're you're a U.S. citizen, at what point? You know, so it just keeps expanding. Yeah. So, and, and the big step, as you said earlier, so there are two steps. One is, I mean, there were more than this, but the main ones were, okay, we can go after spies and saboteurs in the run up to a war. And as you say, you know, when it's close to war and it's close to the enemy, the president has a lot of article two authority there. Right. I'm not saying Roosevelt was wrong. It was in secret. It had no legal analysis, but it was not an implausible interpretation. Then it got expanded, as you say, to communists who are American citizens. There's a national security dimension to that. There's a foreign influence dimension to that. So it's it's a leap. It's not wartime. And it's but it's, you know, it's it's a step, but it's not a huge step. But then it was taking that and basically applying it to domestic criminals, which the mob was on a safety rationale, essentially. That was a really huge step. And as I said in the book, it really went to the core of the Fourth Amendment. And it was unjustified, and it was especially unjustified with regard to bugs, where, and the, by the way, the Supreme Court was very clear on this. They had a decision that says bugs cannot be used. You cannot break, the government cannot break into someone's house and commit a trespass to plant a bug to use for surveillance because they- Well, without a warrant, right? Without a warrant. But yeah. there, there, was no, there were no warrants then. Right. So, so there were no federal warrants then. So you basically, so you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't break in to do that. And- the point is that breaking in to do that was illegal and made the whole act, infected the whole act of illegality, but they kept doing it. And, and Brownell, who was Ike's attorney general, signed off on that fateful step. And that led to some of the most massive and abusive surveillance in the government. And by the way, none of the, against the mob. Right. You know, I don't know, untold hundreds of mobsters who were surveilled in the late 50s and early 60s. I don't know how many tens or hundreds of thousands of hours of surveillance. We'll get into maybe the ones that I looked at. But none of this was talked about in the Church Commission. It was barely mentioned. The Church Commission report in 1975, which went through all the government abuses, because it was the mob. I mean, you know, they did all of, obviously, they did the Martin Luther King abuses yeah. and the, going after the civil rights groups and the like. But, you know, because it was the mob, because the mob are bad guys, they basically skipped over this. So it hasn't really been studied or documented how much they abuse this power vis-a-vis the mob. Right. And there's an irony here, which is that before Appalachian, we should say Appalachian is when, by chance, a highway patrolman in upstate New York happens to catch all of the leaders of the American mafia families getting together for like a summit. Yep. And finally, the FBI, because until then, Hoover had pretty much said, I don't know if there's such a thing as the mafia. And it's not a good idea to federalize law enforcement in such a way. It should be up to big cities, you know, to handle this. It was a local matter. It's not a national matter. And the, and Hoover was very big on the limits of his jurisdiction as an excuse to not do things he didn't want to do. Yeah. Also, by the way, famously until he was forced to with civil rights, he was very bad on this in terms of the freedom riders. Okay. So after Appalachian, you can't ignore the fact that there is a Cosa Nostra in the United States. Correct. And even though, you know, Hoover's big passion is communists, he wants to bug every, he wants to, he's concerned about communists being, but now he kind of takes on the mafia. So he started something with the mafia, but it's Bobby Kennedy who, when he's the head of, he's the chief prosecutor, he's the chief staffer of the McClellan committee going after organized crime and the mafia. It's when he begins his feud with Jimmy Hoffa. 
that's when he becomes the attorney general that it gets even ramped up even more. Is that, I mean, you, yeah. you provided I, the numbers in the book. Yeah. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, yeah. but let me just, can I just flesh that out a little bit? Yeah. So, because I just, there, there's some things got compressed there. Okay. So, you know, late fifties Appalachian happens. Hoover decides he needs to, can't ignore the mob anymore. And he orders for the first time for bugs to be used against the mob. I think it was 57 or 58. Yeah. And, that's when he got this sign off from the attorney general. So he's going after the mob using electronic surveillance before Kennedy becomes attorney general, as you said. Kennedy's feud with Hoppe starts in the McClellan Committee, which was a congressional investigation in the late 50s, 57, 58, 59. And Kennedy and Hoffa's feud developed such that Kennedy, Robert Kennedy and Hoffa hate each other with a deep passion. John F. Kennedy in his makes it a kind of campaign plank that when he's president, he's going to get Hoffa. John F. Kennedy makes his brother the attorney general, and I talk about it in the book. Hoffa knew he was toast when Bobby Kennedy became attorney general because Bobby Kennedy hated him, and he knew he was coming after him with everything. And he did, and we can talk about that if you want, the prosecutions, but the surveillance of the mob ramped up significantly during the Kennedy. Yeah, and that's what I want to start with that. Okay. Because this was just a matter of policy at this point he was following brownell's guidance but he wanted more of it and that's the key thing is that he he just said okay guys show me something and in a weird way it's just like hoover didn't like bobby for most of his tenureship but hoover liked being in power to snoop on people so he was willing to yep. do it well hoover wanted to, so so there's actually a lot we don't know here Okay. And let me, can I just flesh this yeah, out absolutely, a little bit? Yeah. yeah. So, yes, Bobby Kennedy was pressuring the FBI to learn more about the mob. And he made it, you know, a top priority for the Justice Department to bring down the Teamsters and bring down the mob. And that dovetailed with what Hoover was doing. And Hoover got the message and ramped up the surveillance. There's a controversy, and I talk about this in the book, and I think it, I think I know how to resolve it, about how much Bobby knew that Hoover was surveilling and ramping up surveillance. I think because Bobby was very careful to protect himself, but not careful enough. Hoover was much more shrewd. Bobby was very careful to to have plausible deniability about some of the things Hoover was doing. And it actually became a feud. I don't know if you remember this. In the middle 60s or the mid-60s, it kind of came out that all this stuff was going on. And Bobby Kennedy tried to deny that he knew about the ramped up surveillance. And Hoover had the goods. He had all the memos. Right which in my opinion can only be read to say that Bobby knew exactly what was going on and approved of it. He wanted Hoover to ramp it up. He was reading the fruits of this stuff. He knew that they were breaking in and putting in bugs. So yeah, Bobby Kennedy presided over the ramp up of surveillance of the mob. Right. But perhaps never explicitly said, I want you to bug more mafiosos. He never said that. Right. He, he, he definitely said, he made it clear I want you to I want you to go after the mob more aggressively. He definitely knew because Hoover sent memos to his staff, including Wizard White, his deputy, that they were breaking in to do this and that they were increasing it. But there's not there's not an order from Bobby Kennedy in the way that there was from Brownell. And Hoover was relying on the earlier authority. He didn't need new authority right. to keep doing it. And Kennedy just acquiesced basically. And you quote Senator Frank Church in the book later on. A church committee is the one that, you know, kind of finally lets the public in on a lot of things the government was doing in the yeah, intelligence 1975. World. 1975, saying how could he not know? Basically, I mean, there was a passage in 
in the Church Commission, a couple of them to this effect. They couldn't figure out either the extent to which Bobby was fully responsible for what was going on. But the Church Commission, and Victor Dabosky has a great quote on this. Oh, I love this in the book. Yeah. Yeah. But basically, the Church Commission says that the superiors who were kind of hovering above this and watching this happen, but trying to maintain plausible deniability, they're just as responsible for this. And they can't, they can't elude responsibility because they didn't sign the documents. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but right. that's basically what it said. Right. Now, Navasky has a great exchange. Navasky interviews Bobby a couple times. And by the way, Victor Navasky, longtime editor and publisher of The Nation magazine, wrote a terrific book about Bobby Kennedy's time as the attorney general, which Jack cites in his book as well. It's a great, it's a wonderful book. It one really is. Yeah. And he interviews Bobby at one point and he says something along the lines of, you know, Bobby's like, well, we never bugged Hoffa. And he said, so why would, what are you talking about? And he says, well, you were too smart to bug Hoffa. And I wanted to kind of get in there because what you show is that everyone who's closest to Jimmy Hoffa, including Chucky, was surveilled, except yes. for Hoffa. So it was like they had a blanket surveillance of everyone around somebody, but not directly on the guy. Yes. So let me say a couple of things about that. There is some evidence, and I cite it and without yeah. drawing too many strong inferences from it. You know, one of Hoover's deputies had a conversation with Chief, with Justice Fortas, an unethical conversation about a pending case yeah. in which he said, Fortas asked, and Hoover's aide said, I can't remember, I think it was Deloach, but I can't remember. Yeah, it was Deloach. He said, yeah, Bobby ordered a surveillance of Hobba's lawyer. Right. He bugged Hobba's lawyer. So there's that. There's some other memos that are suggestive, but there's no hard evidence that beyond that, that's kind of secondary evidence. There's no affirmative, concrete evidence that Bobby ever ordered a direct surveillance of Hoffa. Although the Hoffa team and everybody on the team, they were totally paranoid and thought they were being bugged. And also they were physically surveilled by FBI agents all the time, meaning they were Un- followed. Unrelenting, unrelenting physical surveillance. Obviously not illegal, but oppressive. But as you said, and I think this is amazing, they were fully surveilling everybody around Hoffa. And I mean full-on surveillance, mainly... Without warrants, we should say. Without any warrants, they broke in. I'll give you the two concrete instances that I talk about in the book. They broke in and put bugs in two places. One was the office of Anthony Giacalone. Giacalone was the, one of the a, a top mob captain in Detroit and actually more influential than that title might suggest. And very close to Hoffa. He was also, it was a very incestuous relationship. He was also very close to Chucky's mother, Sylvia Pagano. They were having an affair, even though Jacqueline, he was married. And in the midst of them constantly was Josephine Hoffa, Hoffa's wife, whom they were basically taking care of. They were all very close. This Hoffa was very, very close to Jacqueline, Sylvia Pagano, Chucky's mom. They were basically taking care of Hoffa's drunken wife, Josephine, while he was off being prosecuted. Well, we should talk. I want to get into this because this is an extraordinary part of the book. Yeah. Okay. But I'm just trying to describe as the setup. And Chucky. Chucky's on a lot of these tapes. Cop is close as eight. And it's kind of an amazing thing because there are these hundreds and hundreds of hours of tape. Hoffa is never on the phone. But, sorry, they only have, Hoffa is sometimes on the phone, but they only have the recording side where the bug is. Right. But you have, you're learning a ton about Hoffa, including his travails at trial, 
through their discussions of what Hoffa's telling them. Right. So, you know, they were getting tons of information about Hoffa, including tons of information relevant to what was going on in the trial through the kind of back door, so to speak. But the, the tapes themselves are just intrinsically extraordinary, I think. Okay, so a couple things. I want to I get into the tapes in a second, but just really quickly, as a Harvard Law professor, why is that? Tell, it's just break it down. That's not good for the Justice Department yeah. and the prosecutor to spy on one's, you know, every, you're, you're prosecuting this guy. And by the way, there was probably all kinds of ethical reasons why Bobby should have recused himself from this, given his past with the McClellan Committee and Hoffa, and yet he doesn't do that. Why, you know, just go through it. Why is it yeah. wrong? Why is it un-American yeah. to yeah. have that level of surveillance in yeah. the middle of a trial like that? Okay. Well, independent of the trial, it's un-American. And, and it's, it's worse because of the trial. So I'll just bracket okay. the trial element at, at first. You know, first of all, on the recusal point, Bobby Kennedy, I don't know if we're going to talk about this later, his prosecutorial vendetta against Jimmy Hoffa using prosecuting the man, not the crime, using every resource right. to put him away is the classic case. Novosky's book is excellent on this. The classic case of prosecutorial abuse in American history. Which, which, ju- which, which Attorney General Jackson brilliantly warned about in 1940. And exactly the things Jackson warned about, Bobby Kennedy did. Right. Okay. But setting that aside, there are several layers about why this was illegal and unethical. First is, there was a Supreme Court decision before this started happening that said, the government is not allowed to bug, to break in with illegal trespass and bug people, that it violates the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. The Fourth Amendment was designed precisely to prevent the government from invading the home without cause, without notice, to basically learn things and, and get information related to a crime or other matters. So this is at the core of the First Amendment. These people are not committing crimes. They're not, they're not, these these surveillances were not done even under the suspicion of crime. These were intelligence gathering operations. Right. And so, and so that's like the legal framework. But the moral point, the ethical point is, and you really have to read these things to feel slimed by it. I didn't have the tapes, but I had thousands of pages, literally thousands of pages. Yeah, this is the amazing thing is that you read, you got actually got the transcripts and read through yeah. them. And that's amazing. It, yeah. It's an amazing, right. it's an amazing thing. And, you know, it's like listening it. It's like having a bug on someone's everyday life. Yeah. With all of, you know, the secrets, the foibles, the personal things, sex was going on. Well, I mean, we should talk about it. There were some extraordinary things that you found about Hoffa and those relationships. I mean, Jackaloni is, is, is Hoffa's friend, and yet Jackaloni and Sylvia Pagano were plotting to rob Hoffa of his cash by taking yes. advantage of, you know, his wife who was Hoffa's a, drunken wife who was sleeping with Jackaloni's brother and yeah. also sleeping with one of Jackaloni's lieutenants. The whole thing was completely sorted top to bottom. Terrible, right? And, and but, but you know, what when when the when the inappropriateness of this it's just so obvious, but it's it's kind of hard to explain. But when the inappropriateness of this really was driven home to me was I read all these things and they're illegal, but they're also kind of disgusting. Yeah. Because the government is just, you know, indiscriminately listening in, knowingly illegally to people's every element of their private lives 24 seven. 
And then I tried to imagine what, you know, what if this happened to me? What if, you know, I watched tapes? What if people watch tapes of me and my private life and private deliberations 24-7, the things I said, the things I do, or my families? Right. And would I want to hear them or see them? This came up because I didn't know whether to even tell Chucky about these things, these tapes, because he knew about the existence of these tapes. He said they were bullshit, and I learned that they weren't bullshit. When the, the real evil of it came home to me when I, he asked to see them, and I showed them to him, and he was so distraught to have this element of his world exposed, not just exposed to the government, to know that all of these intimate goings on over weeks and months and years that are embarrassing, that have nothing to do with crime, that show everybody he loved in a terrible light, including, you know, Josephine Hoffa was a terrible, out-of-control drunk. Sylvia Pagano, his mother, was a was opportunistic. Jackaloni was stabbing him in the back. Yeah. Jackaloni's brother was sleeping with Hoffa's wife. All this stuff. And it was just devastating to Chucky. It kind of crushed his remembrance of that world if you see, yeah. you see what i mean so i don't know if that if that captures that i mean it's kind of obvious why it's a terrible thing yeah no i agree but i just i i like it i like the i like it when you sort of tie it back to the constitution because it's very important because i mean let me just i, I agree with you but i want to try to the other side of this is listen these are bad people and whatever you want to yep. say about jimmy hoffa even if jimmy hoffa even if it was true that bobby kennedy persecuted him and through all these resources, you know, never has what's Novesky had that great line. Never has so much government brain power and money and resources been thrown at a misdemeanor. You know, yeah. which is even if that's true, there were things that Hoffa did that would be, count as a kind of corruption. And so, no doubt. So, what's wrong with you know cutting corners when you're go up against people? Because Hoffa himself, we should say, also liked to surveil his adversaries. He yes. had a guy named Bernard Spindel. Correct. Who was a, a kind of wiretapper expert. And he was yes. he was tried for that. He beat the rap in New York, but it was still something like, so it's like, you know, you're up against rough guys who evade justice, and sometimes you have to take that. That's probably what Bobby Kennedy would say. That's exactly what Nat Lewis, Nat Lewin, I mean, who is right. his, who's an amazing lawyer. He was the, the legal egghead on the Hoffa, get Hoffa squad. And he basically said, we were up against people who were breaking every rule and using every technique and we had to use everything we had. So, yeah. But so I accept your premise. Is it, do you mean this as a softball? Well, I don't, I, I mean it as like, <laughs> I think it's an important point yes. to like kind of get out there and bat down, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So look, there are some people who believe that the ends justify the means. Right. And the truth is that, you know, we can maybe get to this. I think the Supreme court in the ruling in the pardon case, which we may get to, Right. There's evidence that the clerks basically said, this is a bad case, but the end sets by the means it's Hoppe. So what I would say to this, there's some obvious you know, answers. One, you know, these are the rules and that we have these rules and these values because over the course of cases, they serve our society better than the government making ad hoc acceptance when they think best in secret, because that can get out of control. The second thing is, you know, Jimmy Hoffa may have been a bad person, and Anthony Giacalone was a criminal and a mobster. But you know, most of the people on those recordings had not committed a crime. There was some evidence of some crimes on these recordings, but most of the stuff that was being surveilled had nothing to do with crimes. They were just personal matters. And you know, it's just the government, because it can and because it wanted to, just listening in on one's life. 
Now that might not be, if you have a means, an ends justify the means attitude, then that won't be a very persuasive argument. But this really, it's really a kind of core principle of the government. Oh yeah. That there has to be constraint on the government when they're entering your home and watching what you do and listening to what you do. It's, it's one of the core principles. It's what we mean by core limitations of government. It's what we mean, in a, in a way, it's what we mean by due process, but it really is grounded in the Fourth Amendment and the prohibition on unreasonable searches right. and seizures. So I'm, I'm not sure how convincing an explanation that is, but, and look, this was a time, this is all the worse because the Supreme Court had actually held this unconstitutional and the government just made a, in secret, kind of distinguished that case, not very convincing. Now, let me just give the other side of the argument. Okay. This was... This was not as legalistic an age as the one we live in now. Okay. And uh, this is not a defense. But, you know, there were a lot of things the government was doing in secret that was deemed to be justified and thought to have some general basis in Article II, the president's power. And this is actually a good example of that kind of logic getting out of control because it just expanded and expanded. But these things were – there was no – there was – legality was not did not have a valence then that it does now. That's a weird thing to explain. It just wasn't as legalistic an age. Law blended more into politics and prudence. And you see that in the way the government actors, not just Bobby Kennedy, but all the government actors from the 40s through the 60s operated. This is just kind of what we do. And we have our own rules about how to constrain this stuff. They never used the information from the bugs in court. Well, that was, that was always the FBI's thing. Whatever yeah. they did, right? They never. That was, yeah, that that was, and that was what they told themselves. That was they told themselves that's what made it okay, that it was just intelligence gathering. But if you're on the other end of that, and the government broke into your house to listen to your personal affairs, and it's really wrenching, wrenching stuff, you're not, you're not so interested in, you're not so appeased by the fact that the government's not publishing in the newspaper. Which, by the way, the government did do after the Hoffa disappearance. They published some of these tapes to try to flush people out in it, you know, oh, that's, protests. That's right. Yeah. Oh, um, so I'm sorry. That, that was going on. No, 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 no. That's, that's important. And so, all right. Now, let's just get to the really quick. The actual, the big case against Hoffa was, well, it's very hard to explain. It was, he had a truck leasing company that may have violated a labor law 20 years before they brought the case, certain people, even in the Justice Department, who were you know senior lawyers like Ramsey Clark, said this isn't a good case. Why are we bringing it? Bobby insisted, and when they start, they get an informer who is a real criminal who's already in jail. Yeah, and he was a teamster. He knew Jimmy Hoffa, but uh, you know he was there for kidnapping and rape and lots of other things, and he gets a sweetheart deal. So he can be placed inside the Kaffa camp. First of all, just that alone, is that okay for the government to do something like that? Well, the, the Supreme Court, so just to put a little bit more flesh on the bones, this was a guy who, there was a trial in Nashville right. over this trucking company that may have violated labor laws. It was just a misdemeanor. This was the misdemeanor that, the that was, you were talking about right. earlier. It was earlier, but, and I mean, you left out an important fact. So this was just a misdemeanor trial. And Hoffa, in overkill, was bribing jurors. Right. And Chucky was absolutely in, right. Chucky was involved in bribing jurors, and I talk about this in the book. And so, again, I should make clear for the listener: is I don't sugarcoat no the 
foibles either of my stepfather or of Jimmy Hoffa. I try not to. They were bribing jurors. So Grady Parton, who is this man's name, he goes to Hoffa into his inner sanctum in a hotel in Nashville while this trial's going on. And he asks for help and Hoppe gives him help. And he's just hanging out there with, you know, half a dozen other Teamsters leaders from around the country who are there to provide support for Hoppe. And basically he listens and learns, allegedly learns about some of the bribery operations going on. So Hoppe beats the rap in the Nashville trial, seven to five. So the bribery probably was unnecessary. He, it was not that the government did not have a powerful case. But then the government brings a, a, a bribery prosecution later in Chattanooga, and Grady Parton is the main witness, the person that the government informant that was sent into Hoppe's intimate legal headquarters and was listening in on legal deliberations and and the like, but and also reporting it back to the and reporting back every night to the FBI. No, no, actually, not, I understand not the FBI. It was to uh, the head of the Bobby deputized this guy who was who was not FBI but was what's his name his main guy I'm Sheeran Sheeran he had some he was, FBI guys with him but he was mainly actually running his own kind of FBI like he was like there was an it's equivalent of you're absolutely right I take this back Sheridan was not FBI right Sheridan was not FBI Hoover did not like this and didn't right. want to get him because he was like I, I apologize creating a, a parallel yeah, yeah. FBI yeah yeah, yeah exactly weird Sheridan was doing he was he was in the get squad in the Justice Department he was not FBI you're right. absolutely right and so he was reporting to Sheridan, who was on the Kennedy team. By the way, the FBI said, I don't know about this Parton guy. I don't know if we should believe him. He's just telling us whatever we want to hear to get out of all these other crimes yeah. that he committed. <laughs> and he was. And he was to some extent. Right. I mean, and it's still not clear if his testimony was. There was a lot of bribery going on, no doubt. Yeah. And anyway, he testifies in a subsequent trial. He was this secret and then surprise witness. Hoffa had never been more shocked in his whole life when his loyal Teamster local organizer comes out and testifies against him. And it ended up being the first time that Bobby was actually find, finally able to nail Hoffa. It ended up being a very famous Supreme Court case because there was a question whether, why is this legal? Why isn't Grady Parton going into Hoffa's home like a human bug right. and a trespass by the government? Why isn't the government in effect sending in a bug into Hoffa's quarters to listen in and report on his intimate conversations. That was the argument that it violated this, the Fourth Amendment to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said no because Hoffa invited this person in and voluntarily disclosed the stuff. Ironically, if you want to get into it later, this well, is Earl a, Warren was the one dissent. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. Earl Warren was the <laughs> dissent. Was the one dissent, a wonderful dissent, a famous dissent. Love that dissent, where he said basically. You know, you're sending a human being in who's a live bug. And if the if if the defense did this or the prosecution, you would prosecute them for it. And he said it's a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment for the same reason that placing an illegal bug is a, is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. The Hoppe case was at the base of the third party doctrine for subsequent surveillance. We can get to that if you want. Well, the but other anyway, thing, the other, isn't there like another thing which is like, okay, in the grand scheme of things, you, there everybody has to make judgment calls when you're a prosecutor. So the fact that you are so obsessed with Hoffa on this misdemeanor case and everything else, does that justify? Have you done more justice by letting this guy off for serious, yeah. more serious crimes just to get Hoffa? And that to me is like Okay, but let me whack. just make let me make okay. the counter argument there. And look, there are a lot of questionable calls the Kennedy's made, but you have well, let's put it into context. Hoffa 
Bobby Kennedy believed going back six years earlier that Hoffa was the most law defiant, dangerous person yes. in the country. And Hoffa had beaten three or four trials and he was using all sorts of terrible tactics like bribery. Sure. And so Hoffa was breaking every law and Kennedy basically decided when he became attorney general, he was literally in every case he could find, throw everything conceivably lawful and maybe a little bit more against Hoffa. So it really was a situation where it might seem in the abstract like it's just a misdemeanor. Why are you doing this super aggressive technique? But it wasn't just a misdemeanor. The law, it was the larger context of this feud and Hoffa's, frankly, indifference to legal principles. That's a fair point that Hoffa, Hoffa himself did not care. Right. Hoffa was willing to bribe jurors. Hoffa was willing to intimidate and strong arm and so forth. And so they thought they had to use, and, and I quote Nat Lewin in the book saying, basically, we had to use every tool we could because we were up against a hugely well-financed, completely crass, law-breaking, amoral set of actors. And that was the way they perceived it. Now, But that's yeah. what every criminal says to rationalize what they do. I mean, that's what Donald Trump would say. Donald Trump would say, yeah, I have to act like this because I agree. the whole thing is in, rigged. And, you know, I, I agree. And, th and this is why the Kennedy case is such a famous case of prosecutorial abuse, because, you know, he really did set out to just, I mean, we haven't talked about all the other things he was doing, abusing the IRS. And oh, my God. Yeah. Way. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, he, you know, starting in the McClellan committee. When he was in Congress, he would go to the IRS and he got the IRS to change its policy. And he basically allowed Kennedy to rival through people's tax returns without any hint of suspicion other than association with Jimmy Hoffa. And, you know, that wasn't obviously illegal then, but it was wrong and it was yes. against policy. And now it would be completely forbidden. And when he became attorney general, he got much more aggressive. I think it, the number is three or four thousand IRS. He put files. his law professor in charge of the IRS, and put, he put his yeah, exactly, exactly. He put his law professor from UVA in charge of the IRS, basically saying, "I need you to help me get Hoffa." And so Kennedy was cutting. This was an episode where no one was doing right. Everybody yes. was cutting corners, and you know, they finally got him. They finally got Hoffa, and ironically, they got him not for his labor misdeeds, not for his mafia misdeeds but for bribing a juror. In a case, he probably would have won. In a case, he certainly would have won, it seems, yeah. Yeah. And if he didn't win, he wouldn't have gone to jail for him. Yeah, that's, that's the irony. Yeah, and as he was told by his lawyers, Hoffa was very cocky, and he had won a lot of trials, and he thought he was invincible. His lawyers told him, Jimmy, let's just plead guilty to this thing and get it over with, because it's not going to affect you. It's not going to affect your standing in the union. He wouldn't hear it. He wanted to fight it out. And then on top of that, he was bribing everybody. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, all right. So with a little bit of time we have left, I want to talk about Bobby Kennedy's legacy. And one of the reasons I got really into this, and your book is a big part of it, but I've read other sort of books about Bobby Kennedy, is that he has this, I mean, there are, we all know the reasons why he's got a golden reputation now. He was martyred, obviously, in 1968. And there were a lot of good things about Bobby Kennedy's legacy that we're not talking about today. But I'm worried I it it bothers me when I dug up, you know, past attorneys generals praising Bobby Kennedy because I don't think he should be a model for an attorney general. And I think that there are too many. I'm worried that there are too many prosecutors today and U.S. attorneys who might look at the Bobby Kennedy legacy at Justice Department and say, well, I should be like that because he got things done and he was on the right side of history and that kind of thinking. Yep. 
So I'll say several things about that. One, in his day and, and throughout the 60s and 70s, Kennedy was widely criticized for prosecutorial abuse. I mean, okay. this, was, this was widely seen and still today is seen as an example of, if there's ever going to be an example of a too aggressive prosecutor who violated Robert Jackson's norms, this is the one. That's the first thing. <laughs> well, that the was in his thing, day. But I'm saying I think after 68, I agree. it, it becomes I'm gonna a get different to, I'm going to get yeah. to, yeah. yeah. So, you know, famously, Bobby Kennedy changes after his brother dies and becomes the golden boy of liberalism. Who, yeah. And you talked about that a little bit in your first episode. And, you know, whatever happens with that, he still has this Justice Department legacy that for in many strands we're still living with. But you're right. Attorneys General, when I was working for John Ashcroft, Ashcroft invoked over and over again Bobby Kennedy's aggressive, in my view, abusive, going after Hoppe as a justification to be super aggressive against terrorists. He was Bobby was held up as a model. Other attorneys generals have held him up as a model for this is like the best traditions of the Justice Department. Right. And to go to your other point, yes, there are many U.S. attorneys. I wouldn't want to damn them all or maybe even most of them, but there are a lot of U.S. attorneys. They have enormous power. Jackson's lectures should be read over and over. Oh, yes. The power to focus prosecutorial resources on someone is the power to break that person. Right. And there is so little that informs that discretion. And there are a lot of prosecutors that abuse that discretion in many ways. And Bobby Kennedy is standing out there as, as the model. Well, I mean, you teach at Harvard Law School. You're an influential, you're, you're a great legal mind. I mean, is there a way to try to restore a little balance to this? Because I do worry that we're in an era where we're going to see more and more politicized justice because more and more U.S. attorneys will feel justified to prosecute the man and not the crime and that the ends will justify the means. Believe it or not, I'm not an expert on how to fix this problem. And I'm a little skeptical. It's the kind of problem that is regulated by norms and yeah. leadership. And so it kind of depends on who the attorney general is and who the U.S. attorney is. And it depends on the norms floating around in society at the time. You know, there are fixes. And I'll give you, here's a very important fix that's technical, very technical, and it almost became the law last year. It was under the radar screen. Right now, abusive abuses committed by U.S. attorneys are not subject to inspector general review. They're subject to the Office of Professional Responsibility Review. And that's a, in my opinion, terrible organization in the Justice Department that is not very good at reviewing malfeasance by executive branch officials. Holding their own accountable. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The Inspector General is much better, as you know, at holding them accountable. And there was a bill that almost passed last year that would have given the Inspector General authority to examine cases of prosecutorial abuse. And you can imagine how the executive branch pushed back against that, and they succeeded. But that's a, a small fix be that, great. Could, that could have an important impact. And But I don't have a list of ideas about how to fix this. It's really, there's so many jobs in government where the integrity of the action depends upon the people and the leadership. And there's just no getting around that. And I'm afraid this is one of them. Is there a role that law schools can play, especially the elite ones like Harvard? Yes, probably. But there's, you know, we do have, a class in government lawyering, lawyering that's about the the ethics of being a prosecutor, and I believe it's you know it's taught by someone who's excellent, and I believe they probably get a good education, but it's such a tiny slice of sure. what we do, and it's a, you know, and even at a huge school like Harvard, it's such a tiny slice. 
And even that education gets swamped by the norms when you enter the U.S. Yeah. office. And the, the norms there are really promote cockiness and aggressiveness and, in my judgment, overkill. A lot of the times. Obviously, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but that is a persistent feature of U.S. prosecutors. And finally, I guess this will be my closing question, but let's call it Bobby Kennedyism, this tendency that we've been talking about. Is there some sort of, maybe it's hard to measure, but is there an effect that it has on the faith in the institutions themselves? I mean, one of the great strengths of America is that we really are a country that's ruled by law and our courts matter and they're not corrupted. And does something like this erode that confidence in the broader system? Yeah. So this is a hard question, and I'll just give you this answer. I don't know about the, and I think I talked about this in the book, I don't know about the extent to which Bobby Kennedy himself had a direct impact on the disrepute of the department because he was too aggressive against Hoffa. Sure. My sense is that because it was Hoffa, <laughs> that this was an elite concern. This was the ACLU's concern. Yeah. This was the journalist's concern. And it wasn't like Martin Luther King. Right. The, the, the moral valence of going after abusing process after Jimmy Hoffa is different than going after King. That's true. So I don't know if, if this had that impact. I do think you know, we live in a much more divisive world now, politically right. divisive world. It is much harder than ever for the Justice Department to be credible and to appear to be apolitical or nonpartisan. And because of the legacy of aggressive prosecutions and because of the legacy of Justice Department mistakes, you know, whatever you think of, we can pick a prosecution, but whatever you think of prosecutorial decisions made by the Garland Justice Department or the Trump Bar Justice Department, these decisions are viewed today with much more suspicion and through a much thicker political lens than they ever have been. In part, that's because the Justice Department is going at, is, is getting involved in politics more and its prosecutorial decisions. And in part, it's because of the legacy of, of super aggressive prosecutions and mistakes in those prosecutions. And it has a, an additive impact in, in diminishing confidence in these institutions. There's no doubt about it. And how we fix this now, I don't know. I mean, it's a large problem having to do with the nature of our politics more broadly. Yeah. Well, we'll have to get you back. Maybe we can discuss that next time. But this was great. I cannot recommend the book enough in Hoffa's shadow. It's really brilliant. And I couldn't put it down. So thank you so much, Jack, for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Eli. Eli it's great, to see, you great and, to see you. And thanks for your good questions and for reading the book. Absolutely. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.